Has anyone here ever needed a new start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody here ever wanted to wipe the slate clean and just kind of go back in time a little bit? Yeah, I see two hands there over there in the back. See, it's really good that you guys are raising your hands because we're going to do a hand-raising thing in just a minute. Let's try it out. Let's, let's, let's just try this exercise. I'm going to make a statement, and if you feel that you agree with this statement or you've been there before, I want you to raise your hand, okay? Ready? Here it goes. I just, I wish I had studied harder in school. <laughs> I just, or I wish I'd studied harder on that midterm, whatever. Okay, ready? If I had only hung out with a different crowd... <laughs> <laughs> All of these apply to me, so you're, you're getting from, from my life. Here we go. Okay, ready, ready, ready? Gosh, if I had, if I had just saved that money. <laughs> oh, I love it. Okay, so when, when I was 18 years old, I came into a sum of money, and I, I tell this story to everyone because I want everybody to learn from my mistakes. When I was 18, I came into a sum of money. I had done a bunch of acting as a kid and done stuff on Nickelodeon and all these other things. And they hold a portion of your money for you uh, if you're underage. It's a large portion of it. But in addition to that, I'd also had another sum of money laid away in the same account that my mom had been putting in there for me because I didn't have a dad. And so whenever she got financial aid, she would put part of it in there. Awesome, right? Okay. So I came into this sum of money at 18 years old, and you know what the first thing I did was? I bought my freedom with this horrible salvage title, Hatchback Honda Civic. It had, a, it had a hole in the side by the back wheel well, and I bought it for about $350, and then I proceeded to dump about $2,000 into it, and the car never ran well. It always left me on the side of the road, and I eventually sold it for scrap metal. Do you know what I also did with a lot of my money at that point? I bought Taco Bell like three times a week. <laughs> oh, it's not the way to live, let me tell you. That is not, I thought it was riding high. That is not riding high. <laughs> maybe maybe for, for a kid my age, but, but let me tell you. If I could rewind, if I could go back in time, oh my gosh, I'd have saved that money. I would have saved it. I would have done something different. If I could go back to when I was in high school or junior high or whatever, I would have, I would have studied at all. Not just some, I would have, not better, but at all, I would have studied. And, and if I could, I would completely change the group of people that I was hanging out with because let me tell you, I totally circumvented so many things in my life by not investing my time in the right people and the right relationships. Now, that being said, I think I'm doing okay. Um, I think I am. No, 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 I don't, no, 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 I, I, I think I'm doing okay. I just, you don't have to clap for that. I just wanted you to laugh a little bit because you didn't and I was worried that maybe I wasn't doing okay. Okay, let's, let's talk about this. For some of us, the reason we want to go back in time is because we had something that we've now lost. It's like a positive. There's something positive back there. Maybe we had more freedom. For those of you who have already had kids, Naps. Where did they all go? They're all gone. Time. (laughs) Privacy in the bathroom. It's it's gone. You know what I mean? And and you know, I had we had our first uh, kid. We're gonna have our second pretty soon here. And um, and that that is cool. That is really great. But I'm telling you, naps. 
Where did they go? Okay. <sighs> Maybe you had status. Maybe you're retired now and you're saying, man, I used to get to boss people around at work. Now it's just me and my spouse and I can't tell them what to do. Maybe you're used to having authority and you don't necessarily, can't operate in that same authority at home or in your retired life. Come volunteer at Creekside. You can boss people around all you want. Maybe you had an opportunity that you didn't take advantage of and you missed it. I don't know, but for many of us, there's positive reasons why we look towards the past. For some of us, there's negative reasons. Some we have both, but for those of us who, the negative reasons, we, we, for us, the past is a dark place. We don't want to look in the rearview mirror because there's wreckage back there. And quite frankly, we don't want that wreckage to follow us. We don't want it to catch up to us. We're praying it won't come back to haunt us. I have moments of that sometimes. But let me tell you, if you're looking at me and you're you're thinking, wow, that young doe-eyed pastor, he seems to have it all together. I have fit a lifetime of regrets in a few short years as a a young person, as a kid. Um, It's kind of the nature of being uh, a young person in the modern society. We have way more access to things that others haven't had. And, uh, and it's, the pitfalls are so much easier. And that's a bit of a side note, but I, I just want to say this. Um, if you're familiar with the recovery lifestyle or the 12-step program, any of those things, a lot of us are, re- are familiar with it. I'm going to say something right now that's going to make a lot of sense to you. And it's this. I was with my Saturday morning men's group recently, and I, I love those guys. It is such a place of organic vulnerability and safeness. I can't even tell you. It's, it's awesome. It is so, so cool. Okay, we were with one of our, uh, one of our guys in our group. And he's, a, he's an incredible old guy, ton of wisdom, ton of life experience, and he's always got a bunch of jokes. Most of them are inappropriate, but that's what men's groups are for. And we had a blast. And towards the end of our meeting, he made this statement that I, it was so powerful, I wrote it down. This is what he said. He's, he's gone through the recovery process, and, and he's got... Uh, you know, he's, 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 he's got a long time sober. I want to say like 23 years or something. Here's what he said. I know I have another relapse in me, but I don't know if I have another recovery. For him, the past is something he never wants to repeat again. He is perfectly aware of how weak he is and how he could fail and fall. He knows he's got failure still in him. He knows he could do that. But he doesn't know if he has the strength to recover again. Let me tell you, friend, all of us, recovery or not, are a few decisions away from wrecking it, aren't we? So this morning, if the past is good or if the past is bad, this is for us. This is for the blessed and the broken people. This is for those who have positivity and negativity in them. Really, all of us have those things, don't we? It's not exclusive. We can't just say, oh, I'm, I'm blessed and that's it. That's the end of it. That's the end of the story. Or, or, woe is me, my life is so terrible and that's the end of it. That's the end of the story. No, no, a lot of us have both of these things at work in our lives. And so this is for us. I believe that God lays out in his relationship, covenant relationship with Noah, a, 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 beautiful image of his covenant relationship with us. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at his relationship with Noah, then we're going to reference another covenant that God makes only a few pages later, and then we're going to look at our time in our present day, okay? 
I'm going to pull us over here into Genesis chapter 8, verses 15 through 22. Uh, as I said, we're kind of in this Genesis series, this foundation series. And I'm going to do a little reading. Uh, if you have your Bibles, follow along. If, if not, I think we might have some of it up on the screens. But I just want to give you some, some, some context, okay? Starting in verse 15. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives, all of the animals and all of the creatures that move along the ground, all the birds, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark, one kind after another. I love this image. It's like this mass exodus as these animals and people are pouring out of the ark. It's like a parade, giraffes and elephants and birds flying overhead. It's this cool, cool image. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all of the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures. Seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. There's some really cool things to look at there, and I want to highlight them for you. The first is this. He literally states the point and purpose of their exiting the ark, first and foremost. He says, oops, page flipped here. He says, come out of the ark, bring out every kind of thing, so on and so forth, so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. He's saying so that you can prosper, so that you can be fruitful, so that you can grow and change. He says to him, Take, uh, come out with your sons and your sons' wives and all the animals and all the creatures, everything that moves on the earth, come out of the ark, one kind after another. And then Noah does something really cool. He stops and he builds an altar to the Lord. Why does he do this? An altar is uh, sort of tantamount to a memory for uh, this, this, this time period in history. Any time that uh, the person involved in the scenario wanted to remember God and remember what he was doing and, and make a statement, they built an altar as a physical reminder of what God had done. And then oftentimes a sacrifice would be made on the altar. There's a lot of altar stories in the Bible. And this is a cool one because instead of Noah going, all right, we got to get to work. Let's multiply. He doesn't do that. And he doesn't immediately break out a hoe and till the ground. What he does is builds an altar and gives his first and foremost time on the dry ground as an offering to God, an act of worship, which is so cool. And look at God's response. He's pleased. He breathes in the scent of the sacrifice. And he says, I'm going to make a promise. He promises to never again curse the ground because of man, even though he knows man is evil from childhood. He promises to never again destroy all living creatures. And then he composes poetry. If you look carefully at that, that is Hebrew poetic verse. And he says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. There's a great hymn that says, uh, summer and winter, seed time and harvest. It's called... Great is thy faithfulness. It's one of my favorites. And it's based off of that. 
It's a beautiful thing that, that God chooses to creatively speak because he's made us in his image and we are as well creative and we'll look more at that. So God stops and makes a promise after Noah stops and makes an act of worship. And I want to I wanna look carefully at sort of the promise and the covenant that God makes with his people. The first part of it is increase. He's made it very clear that he wants them to be blessed and prosper, subdue the land, and, 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 and take a step into the new order of, of his creation. Uh, let's pick it up in chapter 9, and crack the book in chapter 9, and, and, and let's look at what it means, okay? What all of that means. God unpacks it. He says, uh, says, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air, upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. So that means I guess we were vegetarians, which to me, I'm personally glad I came after this because I love seafood. Come to the crab feed, by the way. (laughs) But then he says this, but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every kind of animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Now, whenever we look at these kind of verses, we're like, God, what in the world? Like, I don't eat anything with the lifeblood still in it. I don't fully understand what the purpose of saying that is. Well, let's, let's, let's just be incredibly practical. If they hadn't eaten meat before, God's literally saying, okay, now, don't eat anything that's alive. He's giving a very specific instruction, a basic biology instruction that is, okay, now that you eat meat, don't eat anything that still has lifeblood in it. There's a process. I, I, I like to realize, okay, God is literally protecting these people from all sorts of negative repercussions. But then he makes this ultimate statement that talks about demanding an account for the life of his fellow man, for someone who sheds the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. Do you know what he's saying there? He's saying, hey, there are still rules. In this new order of creation, you must value the life of your fellow man. And you cannot take his life without realizing there will be a repercussion. And God, I think, as he's talking about this, he's not necessarily saying, the moment you take somebody's life, I'm going to come down and smite you, because that's a little impractical. But you know what I realize is this. Isn't it true that, that, that there is a weight on people who take life? That's why we've got to take care of our vets, right? Because they go and they see things that men shouldn't have to see, things that literally wear on them. There's a law of the universe that says that what you take on to you affects you, right? I mean, this is very simple. What we eat, what we see, what we hear, what we smell, all of these things have a, have a genuine effect on us. And God cares for man because in man's ability to take life, there is a splintering of the soul that occurs. Uh, Gandhi said this, he said, to take a life is exactly that. Everything it is, was, and will be is now yours. And that is a heavy responsibility. God is, God is saying you will be accountable for this as a way of protecting them from acting out in a way that would harm them or others. And then he puts his signature on it. Let me read ahead. This is uh, verse 8, chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I will now establish my covenant with you 
and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the flood waters. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of my covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds of the earth and the rainbow appears, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all the living creatures. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. So God is literally saying, here's my heavenly thumbprint. I'm showing you this covenant, a visual display of peace. And I think it's a, I think it's a beautiful thing. Um, God's promise contains a lot of powerful statements. He wants Noah to prosper and be blessed. He sets out this new order of creation in which we're allowed to eat meat, in which we're accountable for the lives of those around us, in which we're stewards of the earth. And I want to share a theophilosophy of mine that comes from this, and it's this. It's that God never breaks a promise. Have you ever broken a promise before? Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. I've said, hey, man, I'm totally going to help you move. And then, ah, I can't. I'm not feeling well. I've got a cough. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, that's the only kind of promise we break because we can let people down, spouses and friends and family. We can, we can let them down. And it's really important that in the knowledge of that, we also say they can let us down. I think I shared this story once before. I had a, a mentor we were driving together. We were driving to South Pasadena for some fish tacos. We're having a good old time. Really excited. It's going to be a good day. And he just kind of stops for a minute. And as we're driving, he says, you know, Kyle, I'm going to let you down. And I said, what? No. You know, I think I was still a little idealistic at this time. And he said, I said no, really, I'm going to let you down. I'm going to disappoint you. At some point, you're going to need something, and I am not going to be there. You're going to need me to say a, and I'm going to say B. You are going to need a hug, and I'm, I'm going to give you a handshake. You are going to fill in the blank, and I won't be there. And he was saying, it, you know, you have to understand that it doesn't mean that I don't love you, but just that I, I, I'm not perfect. And I decided in that moment, this is a practical thing I want you to take home. I decided to give him permission to fail. Because he's going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. You're going to do it anyway. But if we give each other permission to fail, permission to let us down, we will have the ability to move past other people's shortcomings much easier than we did before. God does not hold us to the image of perfection. He projects the image of perfection through Christ onto us. And we have to practice the same lenience with those around us that God practices with us. you hear that? Okay. I believe that God never breaks a promise. And I want to look at the promise that God makes to another man of the Bible, Abraham. And just a few pages later, Abraham is at this point called Abram. But I'm going to say Abraham as I read through the texts because he spent most of his life as Abraham. God gave him that new name, okay? So just uh, understand that, okay? 
In chapter 15, verses 1 through 17, God establishes another covenant. He establishes it with Abraham. The reason I'm jumping ahead is so that we can contrast these two covenants, okay? And here it is. Let me read this to you. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. He's saying, I don't have a son, and my servant will now inherit my household. So we're jumping in on this conversation. The word of the Lord came to him, this man will not be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and he said, look up at the heavens. Count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. I love that. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll gain possession of it? So he's showing him this, this land, and he's saying, hey, you, you, this will be yours. This will be for the, the, the generations of your family to come. He's making him a promise. These are all aspects of the covenant that we're looking at. He said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, of the Chaldeans, to give you this land, to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O oh, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I'll gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Uh, Let me just tell you, this will seem a little strange at first, but I'm going to explain to you exactly what all of this means and, and the significance that these images have, okay? So don't tune out because this is, it's fascinating. Okay, here we go. So God basically has Abraham do this. He says, so that you will know that I'm going to give you this land, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram. And Abraham begins the process. He uh, cuts them in half and sets them on either side. As the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation of your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now here is the most important part. When the sun had set, And darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. These are the pieces of the animals laid out. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, and the names go on. Okay, now, have you seen somebody get married? Yeah. Do you wonder where the idea of two people passing through two things comes from? That two people walk down an aisle separated on either side by witnesses. This is an Iron Age covenantal idea. What this is, is God literally entering into a union with Abraham. 
He is promising and binding himself. The God of the universe is swearing by himself to make good his promise. Again, God never breaks a promise. We see that indeed Israel's slave to the Egyptians. They come out of that land with great possessions and they do return and they are given this inheritance through Abraham's faith. Now, what is really important about this? When you see a wedding, two people walk through and on either side are witnesses of the covenant. Only God walks through this covenant because the animals on either side are meant to serve as examples of what will happen to the one who breaks the covenant. This, this, this uh, metaphor here, when a covenant was made like this, those animals being split in two on either side, you, as you walk through, are saying, should I break this covenant, may I be like these? You are binding life and limb to the deal, to the, 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 the covenant, the, the, the word. And notice that it is God alone who passes through this. Abraham does not. It says that Abraham is, is seeing all of this in his sleep and that a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appear and pass between the pieces, which means God uses these images as himself walking through the covenant alone. Why? Because if Abraham walked through it with him, he wouldn't be able to uphold his side of the deal. God, in his infinite love for Abraham, seeing his future missteps and knowing that even a man of such righteous faith cannot enter a covenant with the holy God without falling short, he takes the vow himself. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Do you know what God does for us? He makes a covenant with us as his people, a covenant we can't possibly uphold, a covenant in which he sheds blood, he is broken, and we are the recipients of an incredible inheritance. I love it. So here we are, Creekside. This this is where we're all standing. We're blessed, broken, positive, negative. There are those of us in this room, we are all of these things, and we get to be a manifestation of the current image of, of, of God. Now, I want, I want to tell you, Noah, the covenant God makes with him, is based entirely off God's holiness and his mercy. Abraham, the covenant God makes with him, it's based entirely off his love for Abraham and his mercy. Do you know what happened every time Jesus broke bread with somebody? Do you know what that meant in, in the New Testament? That literally meant, I'm entering into relationship with you. It was deeper than nowadays. If I say, hey, let's go get a burger, it doesn't mean anything. But in, in that era, in, 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 in uh, the people of God at that time, to break bread meant to enter into relationship. And so when Jesus sees Zacchaeus, this guy everybody hates, and he says, I'm eating at your house tonight, there was probably an audible gasp. People were like, that guy, I hate that guy. Why does he want to be his friend? That's not right. Why would he be in relationship with him? Jesus, come eat at my house. I'm way better than that guy. No, Jesus enters into relationship with him. And when Jesus leaves the earth, you know what he says to his followers? I'm going to prepare a place for you, which is the same thing that a man would say to the woman he was going to marry, that I am going to go to my father's house and I'm going to build an extension for you and you're going to live with me forever. 
Jesus is literally proposing a long-term relationship to his followers that extends to us. Unworthy though we are, wicked messes of men I am, we get to be the benefactors of that. We get to be brothers with Jesus that God has prepared a place for us. And like Noah, like Abraham, God is the only one who can uphold such a promise. You and I can't uphold it. We just don't have the juice. But God can, and I love it. And you know what this means, though? <laughs> this means we've got we to participate. God may make the promise to us, but we have to accept and receive that. Just like when I said earlier that there are a couple different types of people in the room, I, I think that there are those of us on the side of one decision and the side of the other decision. We have to cash the blank check. We have to take the new start. We have to be part of the new order that God establishes in our hearts and in our lives. And we have to say, yeah, I receive that. I'm going to take that covenant. I'm going I'm to take that to the bank. Yesterday, we had this incredible memorial here for a total man of God. It was the most joyous memorial I have ever been to. It was so I have no other word than cool. It was so cool. It was amazing. And the whole thing was just layers of joy, like an onion. You peel it back and you cry, and you're just like, this is so great. What a life this man lived. And we talked about God, start to finish. You know how many memorials go like that? Not all of them. I can give you that. I can tell you that. It's just so amazing. We knew so deeply, we were witnesses to a covenant that this man accepted with God that we knew he's gone to the place that's been prepared for him. He's in the longest term. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He is in the longest term relationship that you can imagine. He is in eternity with a God who loves him. And that's that's, that's inspiring. But if you don't have that joy, if you haven't experienced that, then, then this morning when we pray at the end is, is probably a good time to just do some business of the heart with God and, and, and receive that, accept that blank check. There's, there's nothing complicated about it. God already did all the complicated stuff. He already made the presence. The, 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 he already made the covenant. He's present in that. Okay, there's that and then there's this. If you have received that, guess what? we got to give each other permission to fail. I know that sounds a little strange. Let me put it this way. We have to be willing to love people like Jesus. We have to be willing to enter into relationship with people that are really hard to enter into relationship with. And I'm not saying you don't have any boundaries and you let people walk all over you. I believe strongly in boundaries. I, I will, I'll go to town over certain things. I, I, there are hills I will die on with people. But let me tell you something. There's something so of God in the process of loving those who are unlovable. I am not a holy man. I already said I'm a a wicked person. But but let me give you an example of what Jesus has done in my life. When I was about 17, 18, I made a decision. There was a man, my father, who by all laws of nature had obligations to me. He owed me his time, his approval. He owed me the things a father owes their son. There's probably many of us who can identify with this. He was not a good father. He had nothing to give. 
His brain was spent by pills and booze. He was a child. His heart, his mind, his tongue, everything about him operated as if he was a child. And at the age of 17, I made a very important decision. I made the decision that I was going to be in relationship with him, even though it would give me nothing and it would cost me because it was good for him, because I could bless him. Even though by all ledgers of life, he owed me. I am not a holy person, but Christ in me helps me love those who are unlovable, those that I would rather despise. And let me tell you something. There was so much freedom in that decision. Now, there are family members that, that, that I have a black and white. I have to love them from a distance. I have to pray for them. But you know what? I don't slander them. I hope the best for them. I have to protect myself from abuse so I can't enter into the same kind of relationship. Does that make sense? I want to protect you in what I'm saying, but I also want to encourage you to be like God, to love like God, to give people permission to fail the same way God has covered us start to finish. Are we living like God? Are we loving like God? Like I said, we're going to take a minute to pray. But before we do, I want to invite you to understand this in the words of Christ. A lot of times, you know, we hear things Jesus say and we're like, oh my gosh, that is so nice. That is so beautiful, so wonderful. This idea that God, this is my second theophilosophy. God never asks us for something he has not done or will do. He never asks us. Think about it. When, when, when we give God our lives, he's already done that. He gave his life for us. When we give God our love, He's already done that. He's loved us start to finish. When we give to the poor, God gave to the poor. Do you, do you understand the premise here? This is something that Jesus said, and it, it's, it's, it's pretty heavy. So there's, like I said, there's a couple lines here. One, John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Jesus didn't say that. And this, is a, this is for those who need to know that they can receive God. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that those who believe should not perish but have eternal life. That's for you. Do you, know what, do you know what's for me, though, this morning? It's what Jesus said in Matthew. He said, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's about as black and white as it goes. I never, ever say, oh, yeah, I'm totally going to heaven. I'm totally going to heaven. This person's not. This person's not. I don't say any of those things. I don't know. I'm just trying to get there myself. But you know what I do know for sure? is the measure of forgiveness I take in my life will be directly applied to me. So if, if you've received that blank check, if you've been given a new start, maybe it's time to share your new start with somebody else. Maybe it's time to let them in on that new start. Maybe it's time to invite them into the mercy and love of God through you, the same way God let you into his mercy and love through Jesus. <laughs>